Welcome to Extra Stuffs. I'm Brian Goman. As we count down to season three of Foodstuffs, Justin and I thought it would be a good idea to release some of our extras, our bonus material, our extended cuts, additional audio that we recorded over season two. And today I am really excited to share an extended cut of an interview I did with Glenford Jameson, who is a food lawyer here in Toronto. Now, if you don't know what a food lawyer is, don't worry, we will explain it. We're also going to get into some of my conspiracy theories as it relates to labeling and food legislation. And um, it's really, uh, I think, an interesting talk with somebody who is well-informed, who's been in this industry for a really long time and has a very unique and educated perspective uh, on food. Um, So without further ado, this is my extended conversation with food lawyer, food podcaster, and all-around good guy, Glenford Jameson. So, <laughs> I think we're finally ready. Um, okay, so Glenford, tell me, what is a food lawyer? A food lawyer is someone who takes a really systemic view to our food system. I mean, the way that we've traditionally organized different disciplines of law has been in contract or in tort or in property or in public or, or administrative law. But food law is somewhat revolutionary in that it, instead of adhering to one particular discipline of law, it adheres to, to the structure of the food system. And so it's really grounded in the interplay between food system stakeholders, be it uh, resources, uh, producers, processors, distributors, retailers, the end consumer, so the public, and then waste. And so what makes us different is as opposed to inhabiting uh, just tort actions, let's say, as opposed to just being a a commercial litigator who deals in any number of uh, commercial environments and tort and issues of contract that arise, uh, we inhabit a universe where we're more concerned about uh, the interplay between, say, uh, meat production, producers, distributors, and, and let's say the retail environment at your supermarket or grocery store. So you're really an all-encompassing lawyer for the food industry, really? In a, I don't know. I mean, in a way, we're really narrow. Like, I don't do most law. Uh, don't do criminal. I don't own gowns. I don't go to court. I've been to court maybe twice. If I'm going to court, it's not a good thing. <laughs> uh, we don't do real estate. Uh, there are like a number of really classical practice areas that we don't touch. What we do do is corporate commercial law and we do regulatory work. And we find that because we operate in within the food system, maybe 75 or 70% of the time, uh, we're really specialized uh, with understanding the relationships between those actors and the issues that arise for them all the time, be it with uh, federal regulators or in dealing with contracts. Let's say you're an entrepreneur and you want to scale up to a co-packer. It's like, well, we write co-packer agreements for co-packers and for entrepreneurs and we know what to look for. And if you want to protect confidential business information in food, that's hard to do. And so we're well positioned to do that. And then to think of how or what tools you have at your disposal to uh, to make sure that you're protecting yourself from liability or from losing whatever your competitive edge is. I want to talk about food. You're very involved with food. Not only are you a food lawyer, but you're a director at Everdale, 
which is a great organization here in, in Toronto. Um, you're involved with the West End Food Co-op. You have a fantastic uh, podcast about food uh, lawyering. That's a term <laughs> called Food I, I Court. I think so. And you're also a founding member of uh, Food Lawyers Canada. I want to get to that to in a second, but I want to start off with why why food? Like you've really centered not only your professional career but your your life around food. Where does that motivation come from? Yeah, well, before I had a social insurance number or or anything like that, when I was maybe 13 years old, uh, my old man thought it was a good idea that I'd go get a job. So I uh, worked as a prep cook and, and a dishwasher at a really crappy roadhouse um, and, and sort of got my first taste of the food industry and what that meant and definitely engaged with like 10 liter bags of chocolate milk as much as I could drink. And that was wonderful. Uh, but I worked, I worked in restaurants, uh, I mean, until really until I was 25. So, so for over 10 years, uh, and in that, uh, in that process, I was a bartender. I really got into wine. I was a wine steward for a little bit. Uh, most of the, my experience was fine dining, uh, at university. I went to Mount Allison in Sackville, New Brunswick, which is a town of like 5,000 people and worked at a restaurant there. And we took over the restaurant one night and I cooked essentially a tasting meal. It was really a passion of mine. Uh, and I'm not sure why it just, it's always been present in my life. And now that I'm older, uh, my sister is the executive director of food first in Newfoundland and Labrador. And she works in nutrition, uh, with the Inuit in outport communities and helping people sort of localize their food systems and work with the government out there. Uh, I've got an uncle who's in it, uh, and I look at my parents who were sort of quasi back to the landers, maybe a little bit. Uh, like we grew up out in uh, north of Barrie in, in sort of corn country, and uh, it's always been present. It's always been super important to me, and yeah. This podcast that you you've created, um, I've listened to a bit of it. Is it? I can see that there's uh, definitely an aspect of I think it that that seems to be for other lawyers and other food lawyers. Is that your main audience or do you want this to be something that's accessible to, to everyone? And who do you, who do you, who is that audience that you're intending this for? That's a really interesting question because I actually have a guy who is sort of my ideal audience member. He's a good friend. Uh, he's a marketing guy with an automotive advisory group, a smart guy loves to eat, loves to cook, uh, loves to yell about government. And, and so when he's engaged by, by one of these episodes of Welcome to the Food Court, I know I've done a good job. Because the idea is that, I mean, like lawyers know all this stuff. And when I speak with lawyers, it's usually in a very different way. Uh, when I speak to my clients, uh, it's meant to be in a way that's accessible. I really believe in sort of clarity or, or clarifying this minefield of federal regulators or of system stakeholders and of liability and that sort of thing. Uh, so you look at, uh, say, like our second episode was on regulation. It was on alcohol reform in British Columbia. Right, yeah. And so it's two lawyers sitting down and we could choose to have a very, very uh, inside baseball kind of chat about what regulation reform looks like. But instead, we really opted to create something to empower the average person to to say uh, this report that came out that guided how liquor law was going to be reformed in BC was largely informed 
or equally informed by by tweets to the member of provincial parliament or the legislature uh, who was developing the report as it was, say, uh, the public insurer or uh, other stakeholder groups, so auto manufacturers or uh, uh, distillers or brewers, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so so is there a regular person? I mean, we deviate. There was an episode that came out earlier this year with a law school professor from Dalhousie, Jamie Baxter, who's an amazing guy, and he yeah, really I'm wants just to. to that. Yeah, it's it's amazing, but it is you can feel that you're getting sucked into not only like a food law right. vortex, but also like a pedagogical discussion about right. like how do we learn and organize knowledge, and why is this important to think of something in a certain way. Which definitely for, again, for my test guy, this fellow JD, yeah. uh, sort of moved, like he said, look, I got 20 minutes into that and just didn't know what to do with it. So <laughs> so, so we shut it down. Uh, but then like this latest episode on tipping came out and he was like, this was fabulous. Like, I don't know why this isn't on TV. And no one was yelling. It was a very sensible discussion about the pros and cons and the labor economics component to it. And it was really engaging. So, so that's who it's for. So it's for... If you're a server or if you work at uh, the Ministry of uh, Rural Affairs, Agriculture and Food at Queen's Park, or um, if you're a fisherman in, in Nova Scotia, like it really it doesn't matter, but it shouldn't be something that's really insular. Like lawyers get a terrible rap for making things way more confusing than they need to. Sure. It's like, like <laughs> yeah. a, a, really a hallmark. And I'm sure in Latin in some law school, that's actually like the slogan for the law school. But for us, like... Uh, the whole point is is to get some form of result or change when you're working on a file. And make sure that like if you're trying to get a transaction done, that it's clear and everyone understands their rights and obligations. Like for us, that's how you stay out of court for uh, food knowledge, for the stuff that's really outside the legal. And that's really what this podcast is. Like it's not legal advice or going through contract law or anything. It's really just about thinking about a court issue in food. It's about having the listener take something away from it that they can maybe use in their daily life or when they're going to a restaurant and they're thinking about tipping, uh, they can sort of understand what they're doing when they're participating in that institution, good or bad. Mm -hmm. Well, that was interesting. And it was interesting timing, too, because that that discussion seems to really be coming to the forefront now, tipping. Totally. That that episode was hilarious because... Uh, our episode was essentially on what Danny Meyer is doing and ours came out on March 3rd or something. Yeah, yeah. And then a week later, Freakonomics released a podcast yeah. with Danny Meyer. It's like, okay, so okay. we were first, but they so got the So if you listen to source. the Freakonomics episode <laughs> and you wanted more. That's right. We've got some more for you. You wanted just, something slightly just, uh, derivative. Yeah. <laughs> Check out Food Court. Um, I want to also talk about Food Lawyers Canada. Can you tell me, you're a co-founder of this. Can you tell me, what this is and what really is the purpose of, of creating of creating Food Lawyers Canada. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this Food Lawyers of Canada is so embryonic. Uh, it's, it's a group of lawyers that have got together that have basically, like, all of their practices fall into food law in some way. So one of them is a litigator and a lot of her work ends up in tribunals. You know? And so she does administrative work, or sorry, administrative law in in the tribunal setting relating to supply management or relating to uh to quota systems that sort of thing and so this is super relevant to her in a way that's completely different from from me we have someone who does almost exclusively regulatory work it's largely uh pharmaceuticals there's half pharmaceuticals and half uh half food 
Uh, and we've got someone on the West Coast who runs a, like a similar practice to mine. It's really corporate commercial focused and trying to help everyone understand their liabilities when they're entering a contract with each other. What's crazy is that to become a food lawyer in Canada in 2015 or in 2012, or uh, which is when we started our firm, uh, there isn't sort of this deep, vast library of knowledge on how to be a food lawyer. It just doesn't exist. And so there's like, compendiums and compendiums of information on how to be a commercial leasing lawyer. Like that is easy. Right. But yeah. for a food lawyer, you're kind of like you're grasping at different practice areas that have brushed up against the the a food law related issue. So for me, one of the first things that I ever read that I got really excited about as a food lawyer is there is a commercial leasing document that basically said like here are like 20 things that have come up over the course of my career on restaurant leasing that are super important and don't have anything to do with your standard office or industrial lease. Right. Yeah. And, and so I've got that in my library now and it's great. That's, alongside, that, that's gold to you. Oh, like, it's oh completely gold. <laughs> well, and what would be even more gold would be a, a, a bar association that would have a right. core mandate of really aggregating and creating information on how to deal with regulators or how to deal with uh, food system stakeholders. What a, uh, the relationship between uh, a food, uh, a food entrepreneur and a major grocer looks like, uh, or, or right. how to contract. Which is really what this is, is essentially is you're creating a bar association. That, that's right. That's uh, I didn't say that that's important. <laughs> uh, it would ideally be a bar association. Yeah. And so, and other bar associations exist. I mean, the major one in Canada for lawyers is the Canadian bar association and it has branches in every province. And like I was on the Ontario bar associations section exec for, um, charities and not-for-profits for three years and it's really helpful and you get essentially the brain trust of charities and not-for-profits lawyers in in the province of Ontario sitting down and talking about current developments and there are people from right. the ministry uh, of uh, of the attorney general who are there and and uh, really important actors who make decisions that affect your clients lives and so that's a tremendous yeah. value so the idea is to create something similar for food law and that's, that's one of the most important pieces of a bar association. The other piece is uh, helping guide uh, regulators or government to make legislative or regulatory decisions. I mean, lawyers are uh, always a really funny stakeholder because unlike, I mean, so in, in food systems, let's say that like one of our bigger stakeholders in Canada would be like McCain's. I mean, they make make a lot of food and right. we buy a lot of it or Loblaws or Sobeys, those sorts of things. And usually they're advocating for a particular position, ease of access to market, easing up on labeling claims, uh, sort of giving them space to do whatever they want, not forcing them to run through a bunch of hoops. For lawyers, really all we ever want, or typically all we ever want is, is clarity and transparency, is clarity, transparency, and, and fairness. I mean, it doesn't benefit me one way or the other. Uh, what I want is for my client to walk away from an issue, really understanding and having confidence in whatever we've done. So uh, is this labeling correct? And it's like, absolutely, here are the rules. Like We've designed right, these things yeah. and they make sense. And with, uh, with food, that hasn't always been the case or there hasn't always been a place for regulators or legislators to turn. Exactly. And I think the idea is that when a regulator is looking at a new legislation, um, they will sort of seek the opinion 
of different stakeholders and lawyers is lawyer is is sort of one part of that or one of those one of those stakeholders that, whose opinion um, they would uh, seek and if you're an established uh, association of food lawyers and there's something that would involve food or food law um, that would make it easier for them to recognize and, and connect with you is that correct yeah that's right so I mean the regulatory or legislative uh, track or yeah, the regulatory or legislative track in Canada typically starts out with rumblings in a ministry uh, or with a minister who's particularly interested in a particular area. And then the ministry tries to think of other areas that have similar legislation or different sort of ways of dealing with an issue. And in that process, typically one of the first phone calls they make is to um, a section executive chair in one of the major bar associations. And it's, it's off the table, it's quite candid, and it's basically like, well, here's what we've seen. So, so in Ontario, let's right. say that they were to look at um, sort of uh, social enterprise corporations like they've adopted in BC. Like that may be happening now. It would be happening sort of quietly uh, with lawyers saying like, hey, like this is something that's really working or isn't working. Or like, here's the great thing about this thing in BC. Here's what you need to avoid. Um, and then once they have that conversation, then they start to draft, uh, and they put to the minister and they kick it around a bit and then they open things up to a public consultation. And that's where, where lawyers and the public equally are really able to, to inform how to make regulations. So right now, federally, we're going through or have just wrapped up a major review of our labeling, like, like the mandatory, like black and white yep. nutrition facts table. Mm -hmm. And how to make it more accessible to the public by using colors or by adding daily value components to certain things. And so that's totally open to everyone. But the majority of people that respond are either stakeholders uh, or, or often they're lawyers. Right. I published a paper on um, uh, updating the Quebec Business Corporations Act in, that was updated in 2010. I published this thing in 2013. And what I did was go through like all of the letters, which eventually get published often, uh, from uh, from stakeholders that informed that development. And some were uh, like the Canadian Bar Association or some were like, like centers of major business, but some were lawyers like uh, essentially like what we are here. Right. Yeah. That we're one-offs. Yeah. I, I think I really want to get into that a little bit more. And I think that this is a really interesting concept of legislating healthy practices Right. Because I think as we have come to understand or not understand what is healthy, especially as it relates to food, is very confusing. And often it seems almost contradictory. So we talk about fat. What kind of fat? High fat, low fat, good fat, bad fat. We're talking about, you know, different diets and this has preserved. This has antibiotics. This has whatever. And it gets to be a really confusing space. And so, and obviously the, the government has a vested interest in keeping us healthy because we have free healthcare here. So whatever uh, steps they can take to um, keep people healthy and keep people out of uh, emergency rooms and long-term care, it's, it's better for, for us as a population. But again, deciding then what is healthy is become sort of a government responsibility and okay they have stakeholders like like yourselves 
but often there are other sort of voices that are coming in. I want to talk a little bit about, um, about labeling. Sure. Uh, you, you've mentioned that because I think that's a, a really interesting um, uh, uh, topic. I mean, we've talked for a long time about uh, things like GMO labeling. Like mo- most of the developed countries, EU, uh, uh, Japan, Australia, um, Russia, all have labeling for GMOs. We, we don't. A lot of people think, well, why, why not, right? And is there a good answer? Is there a good answer to that? Where where is the resistance coming from on something like that? Something like GMO labeling? Who's pushing uh, back against that? Well, let's. I mean, let's jump up to the like the very beginning of your question, which is like, what does healthy mean? Yeah. Which is like, this fascinating quagmire of a question. Like something that's been super fun is that like we're distanced enough from the origins of 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 essentially health science or, or nutrition science that we've watched this hilarious wave of, of like this like period in the eighties where where fats were the villain and cholesterol was the villain and like just eat more sugar and, and carbs and it'll be yeah. fine. And then this complete reversal in the two thousands where it's like, Oh my God, like stop eating refined sugar. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. And, and like this, this change has been fascinating. It sort of underlines in this idea of like, well, what's healthy and like, how can you say something is healthy? Like, is that even possible? Or like, and does the government have a role to say whether it's healthy or not? I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why, I mean, and you outlined one, which I actually kind of challenge because I think the most expensive uh, patient in, in the Canadian healthcare system is probably the one that dies of old age and is just sort of in and out of the hospital for the better <laughs> part of 10 years. Having a, a, a very healthy grandmother that lived deep into her 90s, I can can probably attest to, to some of that. But I mean, there are a million reasons why you want uh, people to be healthy. Like uh, just, I mean, the sheer, the economics of it, right? Like more productive citizens, happier citizens, citizens that are uh, self-assured, like there's a psychological component to eating well and to being healthy right. and being reasonably fit. Um, and, and the government's always, not always, but has recognized this for a long time. Like like as a someone who grew up in the '90s, like it's very clear idea of who Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod are, right? right? Like it's like, and I was freaked out and I'm curious as to why they weren't trying to sell me Frosted Flakes or something <laughs> on on TV when I was watching cartoons. Like I don't understand why they were there. Now I really understand why they were there, yeah. and a lot of what they were saying was totally sound. Um, in terms of labeling, like the short answer as to what's healthy or not is what aligns to the Canada Food Guide. Like if you want a right. bright line answer, right. it's, well, is it healthy? And it's like, well, does it fit in the Canada food guide? And then if the answer is yes, and it's like, that's healthy. And there's a guy with like a, like an okay hand yeah, emoji yeah. saying like, go ahead, like knock yourself out. Yeah, We are giving you approval. I mean, the food guide is something that's, that's been in the, the news recently. Maybe we, we could jump over to that for a second and come back to the labeling. Cause you're right. That's probably a place where it starts, right? That's the, that's the role of a food guide is to say, Relate everything back to this, right? So that's being discussed in the Senate right now. Really, the report that, that's come out has said, this is a really dated guide. Uh, I'm doing air quotes here, guide. Um, <laughs> and it just makes no sense whatsoever. And we really need to look at an alternative to this because the idea, oh, you need this many units of this and you, this many units, and just even what they're, you know, like, again, 
like you say, you look at the the amount of grains that are on that guide, and people now would say that's crazy. So, uh, about the yeah. food guide again, like who is who is part of that discussion? What role can a, a food lawyer play? What role do other stakeholders play in sort of shaping that conversation about the food guide? Well, that's oh man, when that Senate report came out. It uh, it was a you know the Senate has been in a bad place for the last say five yeah, years, sure. uh, and to drop a report like that it really was like a wonderful moment for <laughs> yeah. someone who actually cares or, or gives a shit about this particular topic, and they like blew the doors off the red chamber like it was um, it was well like let's ban advertising food and beverages to children that's a probably important they've been doing that in Quebec for a long time they fought a Supreme Court freedom of expression case on it in the right, 80s yeah. like this is n one so this is good uh, we should think about uh, a fat tax or a sugar tax these have been generally proven to work or positive uh, legislative tools that we can use obesity obesity is a complete drain on our society we need to totally address this it's bananas that we've let it get out of control. And government has a huge role to play in all of this. And part of government uh, having a role to play is in guiding how people eat. And so Health Canada, I, I don't know the history of the Canadian Food Guide. I think it came out in the late 70s, early 80s, or at least like the one that we're familiar with and remember from like our school days. I think it was last updated, they said, in 2007. And I think yeah. what was included in there, if I recall correctly, was a big push towards more vegetables. Right. That was the big thing that happened there. Yeah, each right? agreement. But essentially, it has remained largely unchanged in terms of at least the, what it looks like and you know what people think of. Um, so yeah. So again, it's, where are we going now? But it's, I mean, what's super fun about it is, is so this report comes out and they say, you know what, like not super helpful, pretty dated. Most doctors would have something to say about how it's designed and would have some changes to it. And we look at the rise of, uh, of registered dietitians as a profession, it's sort of like a response to it as well. Like people that just think about what you eat and how complex it can be to distill it down to these bright line rules of six to 10 servings a day of mm -hmm. where dairy should, should play a role in it. You think about the people that have celiac or who are lactose intolerant or like just don't fit in this paradigm, uh, how prevalent food allergies are now. It doesn't, make a whole lot of sense one of the really amazing things they did is i mean it's easier to like wag your finger at a document but it's great to pull out another example and brazil has developed a principles-based approach and and the golden rule is essentially the less processed the better like when you're crafting a meal think about using less processed ingredients right so it's so not a like common sense absolutely. guidelines absolutely as opposed to this uh pie chart it's and <laughs> It's funny. I mean, being a lawyer, you see both styles of uh, of regulation drafting uh, in various various realms. I mean, like this is the same discussion as almost like judicial discretion in sentencing. It's like, was that crime a five year mandatory minimum, or should the judge get a chance to weigh factors when dealing with sentencing? It's the same sort of thing, but pushing it on the consumer. So it's like. Uh, when we're developing, when you're developing your meal for your kids, like, do you need to have six servings of grain a day? Right. It's like, I don't know. How about just like, I don't, I don't care. Try and eat more vegetables. They're the least processed. Uh, sure. If you can get into. And there's grains. not a lot that you can argue with that. And I, I don't think a lot of big companies can say, 
you know, oh, too much about uh, about over-processed food and things like that. But when you start to say things like, hey, let's institute a sugar tax or a fat tax. Hey, um, and you think about the players that are involved with that. In my sort of zeitgeisty, thank you for not smoking, Fahrenheit <laughs> 9-11 kind of mind, I'm thinking about all these these uh, these discussions around boardrooms and the big briefcase of money that goes to the lobbyist that says, make sure that sugar tax does not happen. How how real is that part of it, uh, of of influencing le- legislation through think people like lobbyists? Is that is that a real thing here in Canada? Uh, <laughs> that's a big question. Is lobbying a real thing in Canada right now? In, in food, that sort in of food. Well, I mean, so you look at like Health that. Canada's mandate, right? And so, uh, which is re- like broadly, I would say, is, is ensuring ensuring healthy Canadians or protecting and ensuring uh, the healthy lives of Canadians. And so, I mean, there are a bunch of different ways that a um, that Health Canada can affect that. Uh, and and really, it's up to the minister to figure out what tools they want to push and what they want to pull back from. So. Say for the last 10 years in Ottawa, there's been a move away from really policing labeling and policing like basic health claims. And the notion being that the consumer can really take care of this themselves. So if you go to a store and you see something that says homemade and it's very clearly like, yeah. like three times over, uh, it's just like perfectly cellophane wrapped and definitely out of a major processing facility, yeah. the notion from the CFIA's perspective, who still has the ability to enforce and do all that stuff, but from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. is like, well, you call up the company and and tell them to take that off because it's clearly not made in the home, and then hopefully or may, they'll do Or that. maybe you can register a complaint. And just so, so people know, the CFIA is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Yeah, sorry. I live in a world of acronyms. Um, I yeah, oh, I want to get back to labor. We keep jumping around. I, yeah, I got to knock you down on, on this on this lobbyist thing. Does, is this is this a Wait, real so, thing? Do you... Well, I mean, so we're not the United States. Yeah, that's, I know so that's the okay. major thing, right? So, so everything is adorable. Are there people who work in government relations? Absolutely. Uh, is is our are our regulators being massively steered in one direction or another? I'll give you a great example. In the food sector, uh, there was uh, a group of. Like there was a small table of food system stakeholders that were asked to get together by the federal government uh, maybe five years ago or four years ago to develop a food strategy. And then they asked other stakeholders to sign off on it. But the people that were at the stakeholders were large, um, big business players primarily. Right. And, and so like the Toronto Food Policy Council uh, rebuked the government for this and said, like, this is insane. This doesn't take into account... Uh, really important and progressive issues. This is not going to affect change and lead to healthier Canadians or a safer food system or any of that sort of stuff. So it's uh, does so it maybe exist? we have more checks and balances in place? Like it's not that it doesn't exist, but like you say, this isn't America. This isn't the Wild West. Like yeah, well, it's I mean, so so well, I guess I mean, so my thing is, uh, are are larger players asked to sit at more tables? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and and Loblaws, uh, which continues to grow and has bought Shoppers Drug Mart and um, uh, and, and there was a, a merger of, of grocers at West uh, maybe three years ago as right. well. The Competition Bureau, which really regulates big business, has said, you know what, this is fine. This is good for Canadians generally. And you go into a Loblaws. Like one of my favorite stories is 
Boris Yeltsin visiting America in the early 90s and just going into a grocery store and crying, just being like, this is this. We could never do this. Yeah. This is incredible. This is amazing. And yeah. so so don't forget that like these things are amazing. I'm not railing against this yeah. at all. But I mean, because they're so large, they're invited to tables. Uh, right. That, that and smaller it's about who is left out of that discussion. That's too, right. Right. And that's perhaps where, you know, someone like the Toronto Food uh, Policy Council or perhaps uh, Food Lawyers of Canada will be hopefully invited in to speak on behalf of those people that maybe aren't automatically at the table because of, of their stature or whatever. Uh, you mentioned Loblaws. I want to go to Loblaws and tie in the CFIA. Something that's been driving me crazy uh, labeling-wise and just, you know, and it's in my head all the time is there's a new commercial out, a somewhat new commercial with Galen Weston uh, talking about, uh, or it's different people talking about, oh, good fat, bad fat, uh, you know, carb up, don't eat your carbs. And it's sort of really illustrating the sort of dichotomy of what is healthy, right? What is healthy food? And Galen Weston walks in and says, hey, you know, it's never been harder to understand what's, what's healthy or not. Uh, so, hey, we're going to simplify it for you on all of our house brand products. We're going to have a, uh, a little healthy label and, uh, that way, you know, trust us, it's healthy. Now to me, this is like, I, I don't know what you would, what you would call this, but my big problem with it is that a lot of people are educated to, enough to make up their own minds. To look at, and we have a lot of information. You can look at the back of a package. You can go on the internet. You can listen to podcasts. You can look at blogs and you can inform yourself. However, some people aren't as educated or don't have the time, but still want to make sure that they are feeding themselves and their families healthy food. And my feeling is practices like this sort of take advantage of those people in those situations. And perhaps misinform people about what is healthy and what is not. And just, it's just right for a situation where a house brand who has a huge monopoly on, uh, you know, markets and grocers across Canada is now going to tell us, us, what they think is healthy in terms of what food products they're offering. Right. Does this make any sense to you or am I going nuts? Well, so... Um, and uh, I mean, you're dealing with a lawyer, so I'm always going to temper everything with a sure. deep sense of, please uh, bring me back down to realism. Yeah. I mean, so there, there are a bunch of things that work here. Uh, so the CFI's mandates definitely changed. It hasn't changed in a bunch of core areas. So, so food safety is super important, uh, uh dealing with allergens or health threats. Like mm-hmm. we've really like that's, that's a core mandate, making sure that things are soy free or shellfish or properly labeled and that sort of thing. Really important. Yep. Something that we have done is we have made a lot of space uh, from a regulator from a regulator's perspective uh, for private certification bodies, uh, and this has really been a, a great thing. I mean, the and this has been a great thing. The CFIA and Health Canada worked on creating organic certification, and that was really like a uh, a massive undertaking in 2007 or so. They created uh, regulations and the government certifies what is organic or what isn't organic. They decided to get into that game. 
but the games that they haven't been into for a long time and are starting to wade into, but not in a certification way is like, what's halal or what's kosher? I mean, one of the great things is going to a kosher product and seeing MK versus COR. And they mean different things depending on say the rabbis that, uh, that, that are consulted on those products. And it's up to the consumer to figure out which mark they trust and which they don't. And, uh, is anyone going to get, um, hurt by that? Like, from a metaphysical sense, maybe, but from like a health perspective, no, definitely not. Uh, and then from, let's say with seafood, there's OceanWise, which is developed with uh, Ned Bell and right. Amazing Chef in Vancouver with Vancouver Aquarium. And that's really been incredible in helping guide consumers as to what's sustainable seafood and what's not. So there's an ethical issue and, and this is how we're rectifying that. With With health labeling, we're never going to deviate from sort of these core components in, in the legislation that say you can't mislead with labeling. Like they cannot give someone an, an erroneous impression of what the product is going to do, uh, and they can't be materially misleading. So, so from a fundamental space, that's where it comes from. So when they're marking, when Loblaws or anybody is marking a product with this is healthy or nutritious, right. it actually needs to be grounded in the Canada Food Guide. So is that is sort of what the, the healthy definition comes back to? It actually, like, it backstops it is this idea of, of like, what's healthy. And so they're like, well, it fits in the food guide. And so okay. then you can say, well, then that's healthy. It contributes to it. And typically, I mean, for... Uh, to deal with, uh, I mean, labeling risk, you tie it into like, this is a great serving of your six to 10 daily mandated servings of grains, right? Right. Or that sort of thing. And then in terms of creating like a, a what's healthy certification for your own products, it's like there, there is, which is what you're talking about with Loblaws basically, right? Which is like they, again, like they give the, the okay hand emoji and like slap it on it and say like, good for you. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, inherently has some issues, but there is some regulatory oversight. I mean, first I will say, because Loblaws is so huge, it receives a tremendous amount of regulatory scrutiny. So uh, people who produce, or companies that produce products can typically uh, often fly under the radar of the CFIA or Health Canada uh, if they're running afoul of labeling issues or uh, proper language labeling, like, all sorts of things. Or if it's a novel food, even let's say, uh, but once they're brought into Loblaws, like Loblaws has a major regulatory team. They interface with the CFI and Health Canada all the time, and 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 they're really scrutinized. I mean, my favorite example is is fiddleheads, which have been in farmers markets forever, right. but have maybe two or three years ago were brought into Loblaws. You could actually get them at a grocery store. What's super fun is I mean, fiddleheads have a toxin in them if they're not cooked enough and it can make you pretty sick not botulism sick but you'll miss a couple of days of work sick yeah okay and so at a farmer's market there was never anything that said you got to cook these or you're going to get sick now when you go to loblaws if it's fiddlehead season which it will be soon there will be a cfia notice above them saying listen you knuckleheads right. cook these where you're going to get sick nobody's here to tell you there's no friendly farmer here to tell you or not tell you exactly yeah exactly um so in terms of but to get back to this idea of like, so Loblaws helping you say what's safe, what's healthy or what's not. Um, if I were in Loblaws shoes, I would say, look, we uh, legislation mandates that there is a nutrition guide in the back. We just wrapped up as, as a people, a much clearer way of identifying uh, what the constituent components are in, in a food product. And so it's made a major move to, to plain English. So 
uh, food dyes are called food dyes now, or whatever the dye is. It's not like RY number 40. It's like right, okay. alluvial red and, and sugars are broken out. What is it? Molasses, corn syrup? Um, is it from cane? Uh, and, and, and they're using colors and they're really emphasizing daily values. And so it helps guide a consumer. In terms of the person who's un, uh, not attuned to looking there, if I were in Loblaw's shoes, I would say, well, it's the government's job to get them to look there or do a yeah, job. Yeah, our job. Our job is to provide you with our fine product. Definitely. Right? Definitely. And then, and then the last piece is, and by and large, these products conform with uh, the Canada Food Guide. Yes. And we're scrutinized by these regulatory Which authorities. Which we've sort of already established or has been established is sort of a dated nonsensical kind of thing but i totally and then then, they would say don't hate the play hate the game yeah sure and i guess and that's that's where my sort of uh uh pseudo conspiracy theorist mind goes is that they 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 know the rules of the game in fact they are an active part of shaping them so when they say healthy they know what they're saying is in accordance to the food guide which they've already had input on shaping and they know is really you know uh, lax and uh, like for example i saw their saltines four different kinds of saltines they had uh, you know the classic classic salted top classic unsalted (laughs) they had the whole wheat salted whole wheat unsalted every single one of those products had the healthy choice Label on it. That's a good source of fiber. Yeah, there you go. Hey, it's got it's a source of uh, a grain for you. It's uh, yeah, fiber. I mean, I think most dietitians or nutritionists would look at that and say that is one of the worst things you could eat. Yeah. How could you eat that? Yeah. But I think again, maybe again, it's knowing the rules of the game, they can sort of get away with that. My concern again is, I think a lot of educated people won't let a healthy choice label influence their decision. Maybe they'll let, uh, you know, organic or uh, sustainable seafood or something like that. Okay, fine. But the people that might have this influence, and keep in mind, people must be influenced by these labels because otherwise they wouldn't do them. They yeah. wouldn't fight for yeah, them. Definitely. So obviously there is an impact. And my my argument is that the people that are impacted are our most vulnerable population are the people that are always, they don't just fall through the cracks, they're pushed through the cracks, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's that's my issue with this sort of loosey-goosey, we control every part of this game, we'll throw a healthy label on it, and then you can be conscious-free and... Well, but I mean, don't forget, I mean, so something that's so great about food law is the amount of stakeholders there. So, so for every person who's from a major grocer or retailer or a major producer of, of really truly processed products. There's the Canadian Medical Association, the Association of Registered Dietitians. Uh, there are educators who are there. Like there are any number of stakeholders. Uh, and so, so I don't think that it is as skewed uh, to those retailers uh, as we might feel. I think what we feel is a profound disappointment uh, in two things. And one is the ability to take the rules of the game and really come to illogical outcomes, which is frustrating. Right. Uh, and then the second piece is uh, a disappointment with where we're at in food literacy. And, and there, are, there are two issues there. One yeah. is a socioeconomic piece and one is an age piece. And something in the Senate report 
was we got to ban advertisements of food and beverage to kids because these kids just don't know any better. Like they are the sitting duck. And, and we speak to them all the time. Tony the Tiger is uh, an mm-hmm. incredible form of expression that has had an indelible mark in anyone's life who grew up in Canada. And it's like, is, is that fair? I mean, this is, these are cornflakes covered in, covered in sugar. Like, that's not good for anybody, yeah. really. It's not going to make you good at sitting in class in grade three. It still works somehow. Like, yeah. I know, I, I, like I don't eat cornflakes every day, but I, there's a lot of people of, of my generation that grew up eating that food that every now and then will get it in their mind, you know what? I want some Fruit Loops. Amazing. And they'll go out and buy a box of Fruit Loops and they'll eat it, eat it and nine times out of ten, their reaction is the same. What the hell is this? <laughs> How did I ever eat this? This is the sugariest thing possible, but you ate it every day. And so, okay, so... When kids' brains are wired differently too, right? Yeah. Where nothing is too sweet. Like it's been shown oh, that yeah. there is no there is no eleven for kids in sweetness. It's right. just the more the better. Yeah. Um, now, I, sorry, I, I, I want to get. I'm, we're going to get to the end soon, but I want to start to get you to put on a different hat for a second. Sure. You're going to still be a lawyer, but I know one of the things that you you mentioned that you don't you focus on just some areas of law. Uh, uh, Corporate commercial is, is one of them and the sort of legislative arm as well. One of the things you leave out is litigation. Let's say you were a litigator um, and you were responding uh, or asked to respond uh, to this re- report that's come out uh, about the Canada Food Guide. Where, where would you start? Sure. I, there are uh, there are any number of avenues. I mean, the first, and, and we've touched on this a bunch today, uh, is uh, a freedom of expression issue, right? I, are corporations allowed to express freely their ideas when they're marketing? And this is something that the courts have dealt with uh, in the late 80s with, uh, it was Irwin Toy was the case, and it was uh, a charter claim. It's like freedom of expression is really important. There was a consumer protection law in Quebec saying you can't market things to kids under 13 years of age. And the court said, this is infringing uh, this Irwin Toy's ability to have free speech, but it's overrided by the public importance of, of limiting that free speech. And then we did it again in 2007 with, uh, with cigarette manufacturers limiting right. tobacco advertising in Canada. And we, uh, in a very different way, came to a similar place, which is like, no, it's more important to not have this expression than to have this expression. For corporations, it's limited. Um, about banning, about banning advertising for kids. I mean, this is like, it's, it's a weird thing. Like it's amorphous, right? It's like saying what's healthy. Um, like if you were like, how do you, how do you advertise to kids? Sometimes it's plain, sometimes it's not. So, so that would be a question. How far reaching can you go with that? Uh, there is, and I mean, in the United States, which has completely different case law, like one of the super interesting things was a court case on, on the soda ban and right, the freedom sure, for York, a corporation yeah. to express itself through the size of its cup, um, which is super fun and an unusual way of interpreting uh, the, what the founders intended. 
but I mean, there's any number of issues. Uh, the fundamental piece is just like the the freedom of someone to choose crappy food. I think is, right. is like the starting point. Hey, if they want, hey, we're still allowing people to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. So if they can kill themselves doing that, why are we going to prevent them from killing themselves doing anything else? Yeah. Definitely. I guess is is part of that. that definitely, and so and so, a government really needs to be careful in figuring out uh, where it wants to to move uh, move consumers and where it wants to restrict those rights. I mean, there needs to be a an overriding public health emergency, basically, to to really change uh, change diets right. uh, to the degree that was suggested. But I mean, what's crazy in that Senate report is a lot of those things we're seeing in other parts of the world. Uh, and, and we're seeing them, uh, we're seeing them continue and some are baby steps. Like the craziest thing again is like the, let's just have a serious look at the food guide, right? Chances of litigation, zero. I have a hard time picturing a, uh, really, yeah, a yeah. case there. You get into taxation, the ability to tax, if it's coming from a federal level, they can do that. Um, is there litigation that's going to come from that? No, there'll be a lot of pushback. The again, a referendum. I, I don't. I'm not convinced that it would pass, but it's not up for a referendum. And so, if our legislators wanted to do that, then they could probably do that with a whole lot of trouble. The freedom of expression stuff seems like it's fairly uh, settled law, so it would probably be challenged. Um, it would probably be challenged, but I don't think that. Uh, because there's think that, solid law on their side as well, right? Uh, well, a, I mean, I mean, but like those those major sort of freedom of expression right? cases really do fall right. on the side of of uh, of government or on those seeking to restrict freedom of expression. Yeah, uh, and I'm not an expert of law in this area at all. And there are people that spend their entire careers <laughs> writing <laughs> books on on these like two cases. Yeah. Like I'm doing like a very loose like law school reading yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of of this stuff. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it all seems within reach or there are reasonable enough test cases elsewhere in other jurisdictions that have come back in a successful manner or, or haven't. I mean, like there are countries in Europe that have done sugar taxes and then have repealed them. Uh, I think Denmark okay. did it. Yeah. It was short lived and didn't work out. But I mean, like as a nation, like we do wacky experiments as well. Mm-hmm. Uh my partner taught a course in the history of Montreal and even a city like Montreal went through prohibition. It lasted, I think three months, but, uh, but they tried it out. Yeah. Hey, who thought they would have stuck to their, uh, their smoking indoors ban? Never I thought that would have gone. I thought that was going to be a key factor to leading to this country's disintegration. Like I'm just <laughs> convinced. Forget it. We don't want it anymore. Okay. Um, so last question, um, you're involved with a, a bunch of different organizations you represent your clients obviously food is something that you're very passionate about and issues related to it um but you're in an interesting position i think right um because you have to respect your client's wishes and sometimes they might uh, uh conflict with you know your own personal values if there's something that you're really passionate about that you think needs to change what can you do and what do you do um to make that change happen uh that's a good question so i mean you're right this practice i mean this firm has been around for three years and it really reflects uh, personal values uh, and, and what I find to be important in my daily life outside of my practice of law. And that's something that we're seeing more and more in the profession, which should be really exciting for everyone. 
However, I natively come to it as a consumer. And so I need to check that uh, a lot of the time when I'm working for clients. That being said, we don't work for a lot of clients that I don't feel some sort of alignment to. Uh, and that makes going to work a lot easier and more fun. Yeah, sure. And also means I get to hang out with my clients and usually get to talk about really fun, interesting things that I'm passionate about. Uh, so, so that problem sort of solves itself in this little firm uh, that I have with, uh, with my associate. In terms of, of making an impact on, on causes that I feel passionately about, uh, really for me it's about investing my personal time, so my non-billable uh, personal time into causes that I really believe in. So we spoke about Everdale very briefly, which runs two learning farms, uh, one in the country north of uh, Toronto, and one at Jane and Steele's, uh, which is an incredible neighborhood that's finally starting to get treated the way that uh, that it it deserves as a as a great place of of culture and of 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 dynamic people that can do great things. Uh, and, and farming or learning farming or urban farming is uh, is an amazing tool for that. Uh, the Western Food Co-op uh, is about engaging a community to develop a community-owned food hub and to run a farmers market, engage people with that sort of thing. I find that super important. That organization is dynamic, and it's been amazing to be a part of. Uh, I think the important thing is for as consumers to realize that you really have a voice in all of this. That's actually where I wanted to go. So right. I want to because you mentioned how you can write a letter, you can meet with people, you can write an op-ed, um, and you have a little bit more weight than the public, but right. they can do that too. So maybe you could just continue on that thread and forget that I've said anything here. No, 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 it's great because the leading up to that, it was all just rambling anyway. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that, uh, I mean, I happen to be a lawyer and I wade into these laws and regulations uh, all the time and I work with these parties. Uh, but fundamentally, the the powers that I have are are the same as anybody else. It's uh, it's about energy and it's about focus and determination and passion and and taking those issues that that you find concerning uh, and making sure that uh, governments are made aware of them, that food system stakeholders are made aware of them about demonstrating that uh, there is a market for that product or that something should or should not be allowed uh, and Writing letters, writing newspaper articles, uh, talking to people, organizing people. I mean, these aren't things that you need a, a law society to back up. I mean, they're things that normal people do all the time. And that's maybe the most exciting part. I go back to the West End Food Co-op. It's a cooperative in Parkdale, which has traditionally been a, uh, a rougher neighborhood in Toronto that's had socioeconomic issues. And, and they've got this cooperative that's designed to bring in people from uh, the Parkdale Activity Recreation Center to learn how to cook better food uh, and, and work in a commercial kitchen and learn job skills and eat better, which contributes to better mental health for people who have had, had struggles in that way. I mean, it's, it's something that connects everything, and you don't need to be a lawyer to do any of that. You really just need to care. Thank you. Thank you for caring. Ah, two gooders. <laughs> Unite. No, honestly, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, thank you. So 
there you have it. That was my extended conversation with Glenford Jameson. Just a, a pleasure to to speak to somebody, like I said, that has been in the industry a long time, has seen it from, I think, a, a unique perspective, has represented a lot of people, and clearly has passion for food and for doing the right thing. So thank you to Glenford Jameson. Uh, you can listen to Glenford Jameson's podcast. It's called Welcome to the Food Court. You can find it on iTunes. Speaking of iTunes, if you haven't subscribed already to Foodstuffs, please do so. Like I say, Season 3 is mere weeks away. We're really excited to bring it to you. You can also connect with us on social media, Facebook, search Foodstuffs. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Foodstuffs Life. For Jessica Walker, I'm Brian Goman, and this has been Extra Stuffs. <laughs>